My name is Ben Kearns, and I'm the high school pastor. And you just heard from my wife, Pastor Jeff, who gave out those colors on every page. Just kidding. Pastor Shelley is my wife, and uh, I'm Ben Zulsdorf. And uh, Jeff and Ben are gone, so youth ministry takeover. So snaps for us, you know what I'm saying? So we're going to have a good time this morning. Um, We uh, have been in Faith in Action, Hall of Famers. That's been our series for the summer. We're looking at... Uh, the Hebrews 11 text, where it just kind of lists out people who have lived out their faith in ways that we can model ourselves after. What I actually found really remarkable, too, is as you read the list, and as you dig deeper into the text um, of who these people are, we've covered Abel, Enoch, Noah. Today we're talking about Abraham. And these are very ordinary, broken people who make lots of really deep mistakes and who wrestle with really deep problems. And so um, if we can kind of let ourselves be a little free and relaxed, that these aren't like exceptional people. These are people who God used uh, to, to bring out uh, his purposes, and, and we could be part of that as his church now, which is pretty rad. So um, I'm going to give you a little roadmap of where we're heading this morning. Um, so here's what my main takeaway for you is this. Faith is surrendered hospitality, and trust. Now, there's just a few of us in the room, but go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say that. Faith is surrendered, hospitality, and trust. Go ahead. Say that to the person next to you. Faith is surrendered. Yes. Surrendered, hospitality, and trust. So good. It's a mouthful. I know it is. It's good. Faith is surrendered, hospitality, and trust. And I'm going to talk about some paintings. I'm going to talk about Eastern and Western thinking. I'm going to talk about a story of relocation and an unspeakable test. This is where we're going this morning. Uh, So let's talk about some paintings for a second. Uh, I have a friend, his name's Blake Osaby. He plays drums. He was playing drums today. He's a great drummer. He's a really great painter. Uh, And Blake, uh, when you see, this is kind of a snapshot of his studio. And if you uh, ever get a chance to see his studio, it's it's really remarkable. It's amazing work what he does. Uh, But it's really cool. Um, is when you know the context of his work, it makes it even more just miraculous. It's really amazing what he's doing with paint. Um, And uh, context matters and everything, especially in painting, uh, because what's amazing about his work is when you get to know the intricacies, Blake, um, his work revolves around mapping memory. So if you think about what you ate for breakfast yesterday, you might be like, I think I had a bagel or cereal. I'm not quite sure, but if I asked you to what you have for breakfast a week ago? Maybe unless you eat bagels every day, you could tell me, but you probably don't remember that. You think about you know, the significant events in your life too. It's kind of how memory works, right? We kind of piece it together and his, his work revolves around how we reflect on memory and how God is at work in them as well. So if you ever get a chance to talk to Blake about his work, you should do it. It's really, really cool. But the context of knowing Blake's work matters, understanding the paintings at full. And uh, this is always true for when we engage scripture. And I'm, I'm saying context matters. Context matters. Uh, We talk about this a lot as pastors, as a church, because the Bible is written in such a different time place than us. Um, If we can't get our heads wrapped around who the Bible was written to and how it was written and how it was perceived and understood, how God moved in that time, it's just harder for us to kind of get there appropriately in our own thinking. Um, And so I want to kind of give us another tool. Um, One of the ways that the covenant denomination talks about Scripture a lot is um, the Bible uh, was not written to us, but it is written for us. It's not written to us, 
but it is written for us. We're not the original intended audience, but it is written for us because God's word is so active and alive and transforming us and allowing the spirit to breathe through it. And so that's why we have to do that extra work. There's a tool that I love. Uh, it's called the Bema Podcast. Uh, and the Bema Podcast, uh, Bema means, um, it, it's the word for in the first century synagogue. It's like a small platform, like an inch off the ground. Like that was their platform because it was like person read it, centered around the word of God. Just a small platform because the word of God center, not the person, and everyone else around them uh, uh, debated what the text meant. And so what these guys do, uh, Bama podcast with Marty Solomon, he's kind of like the main guy with it. He actually looks like Abe who's playing bass, big beard, looks awesome. Hopefully he's got some tattoos because that's just always really cool. But um, he is, Marty's just amazing. He gives us so much insight um, into the Eastern Jewish world of the text. And this is such an important part for us to, to grapple with um, because this just gives us that context. And there's two things the Bema podcast does really, really well. Uh, they talk about, uh, for our purposes, this is, these are things that we're going to kind of backdrop my sermon today um, on. Uh, and those two points are this. They talk about trusting the story. It's the first thing that Bema podcast talks about. So if you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning... God created, and then there's this narrative saying all of these things are really, really, really good. And the argument here is that the Old Testament, um, everything that happens in the Old Testament is basically how people wrestle with going back to that story. If God is a good God who created us for good things in a relationship that is ultimately good and that we are good, how do we continue to trust the story in a world that is broken with sin? And he wrestles uh, beautifully with that piece and gives us kind of tools to think about that. So think about that, trusting the story. The other thing that he really lays out too is this idea between Western versus Eastern thinking. So uh, especially in how we answer this one question, what is truth. So all of us in this room are Westerners, okay? Uh, even if we're not from the West, uh, we grew up in a world that is Westernly based in how we think about the world. Uh, and in, in the problem with that uh, is that the Bible was written from an Eastern mentality and mindset. Now, neither are better than the other. Uh, they both actually complement each other. But it's really important for us to recognize that we, all of us, have an inherent bias when it comes to interpreting Scripture. And here is the main differences that I want you to think about today. So the Western mindset is an individual mindset. It's analytical and it's scientific. As Westerners, we love a list. Uh, some of us really love a list, um, but we love to be able to go, okay, who is God? And then here's the bullet points and creeds and doctrines, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. It helps us think about things, helps us to make plans well with that, and helps us, gives us a direction and a path. But the problem with that thinking is it falls short of the totality of the text, especially when it comes into reading Old Testament, because the Eastern mindset has really three main focal points. They read the text from a communal standpoint, a relational standpoint, and a focus on the story at large. So you can just already see right, right away, there's a different set of questions that an Easterner, uh, that an Easterner will ask when engaging the text that is different from Westerners. And today, I want to encourage us to engage the text like an Easterner, especially when it comes to seeing the story of Abraham at large. Okay, so there's our backdrop for the text. Uh, I want to go ahead and go into the first text that we're going to look at today in Hebrews, and that is Hebrews chapter 11. 
verses 8 through 10, this is what it says. This is the relocation story. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Okay, so when we think about Abraham and the story of Abraham, this is one of those things that probably comes to mind for you. Abraham was uprooted and left. He was relocated. By faith, when called to go to a place, he would later receive, he obeyed and went. So he didn't even like receive it yet. Later receive. He obeyed and went, not knowing what he was going. He made his home in the, in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Okay, a little background on this text. So we know that Abraham was asked to go and relocate. God wanted to do this, gives him the promised land. He has to go. in uh, that context is rooted um, in a place where, if we look back at the text in Genesis, this is from Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, Abraham is called to be a blessing to the nations. And he's actually blessed to be a blessing. And here's that, here's that text right here, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. It says this, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, oh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. The Lord has said to Abraham, that's the next slide. The Lord has said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, that last line, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the center point of the Abrahamic narrative. Abraham's going to be blessed by God, by Yahweh, so that he and all people who come from his lineage can be a blessing to people. Even the verse before that where it says, I'll curse those who curse you. Like, that, there's a different sermon in there. But the point is that God actually blesses Abraham so that the Jewish people, the Israelite people, can be a blessing to all peoples. Okay, so when we think about being a blessing to all peoples, how do we learn how to do that? And, and why did Abraham have to relocate? Because the question I'm asked, I'm left with asking in this text is, why couldn't Abraham just stay put? Like, if God's going to bless him to be a blessing, why does Abraham have to go somewhere else to do that in real time? Like, why can't God just give him what he needs in the comfort of his own home? I think it'd be easier for him to be a blessing at home, right? Wouldn't you? He has all the things. He's got the comforts of his family. However, he sets up his tent and his stuff to just people come on in. Just come, just come to me. I'll, be, I'll bless you. And, they, and God says, you need to go. And I think the reason that Abraham couldn't stay put is because there's this reality to understanding the, uh, the, 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 the importance of being a foreigner in the context. Throughout all the Old Testament, God loves the foreigner. And he says it over and over and over again, that we are to love people who aren't like us, to love the foreigner in our midst. Here's two passages that talk about that. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 through 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt I am the Lord your God. 
Another passage that we see this in is Deuteronomy chapter 10, 18 through 19. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Okay, precedence on being a foreigner made very clear. God loves the foreigner. And I think that the reason Abraham had to leave and do that was because it takes one to know one. Abraham had to experience in his bones what it felt like to be a foreigner. For those of you who are in the room right now who are not from the States, uh, you know this experience. Or your family, if you have family above you who's come here before you, you know what this is like. To be a foreigner in a place, you don't know the context, you don't know how the customs, you don't know the, the things that you should do and shouldn't do, and you're very uncomfortable. And you're dependent upon the hospitality of those who do know what they're doing, right? And, and eventually what happens is, uh, as a foreigner, if you are greeted well, and you learn how to feel that, you feel in your bones, gosh, this is uncomfortable, but then you make your home in it, and then all of a sudden, someone comes in your life who they're now feeling that way, they're the new foreigner, you get to love them really, really well, because you know it. You felt it in your being what it's like to feel like the outsider. And so it's really important for a person to receive this blessing. Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all people. To do that, I need you to feel uncomfortable so that you can love all people and not just people who look like you, think like you, talk like you. And so we see right away part of the faith in action here. Abraham surrenders in obedience to God. He says, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Feels like a foreigner, and then progressively from that place in time, Abraham and the people get to love those who are in their midst, who are foreigners, as God has commanded them to do it. And that's a reminder over and over again. So our first takeaway this morning for faith in action is this, I want to ask you a question, is, is your faith lived, is our faith lived in a way where we are radically hospitable to other people? There is a uh, TV show called Ted Lasso, and I can't fully endorse this show because there's like uh, lots of language and some, some risque themes, and there's some words that Ben Kearns actually might say on accident from a sermon that happened, um, and I'm not going to say those words, but the show is amazing because it actually revolves around the, care, the centerpiece of, of uh, the good guy wins. It's a very refreshing show in that way, and Coach Ted Lasso becomes a foreigner in the UK, never having coached uh, soccer. He's a college football coach. Uh, and he feels that. But as you see the series go along, Ted Lasso radically loves people. He treats everyone the same. Uh, he calls out the best in them. And he lives this radical hospitality out because he's felt it himself. He can also give. And I think this is the kind of thing that we're called to as well. We're called to be radically hospitable to those around us, to live inside that vein as the church, to follow through from the Abrahamic promise, to be a blessing to all people. It requires us to be uncomfortable, so we have to lean into that. So that's the first thing. Okay, let's go into this story. Gosh, this story's wild. Okay, so an unspeakable test. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through uh, 19. So this is the Abraham and Isaac story, which you're probably familiar with. Um, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac 
that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Okay, I need to call this out. This story is so messed up. Like, it's so messed up. I'm about to be a dad, uh, like three weeks away, which I'm very excited about. I know, it's very exciting. The thought that God would ask me to sacrifice my, like, who, I can't even say it out loud. It's so messed up. And, and this is like, it should trouble us. This text should trouble us deeply. And hopefully it does. What kind of God does that? I want to focus on the word tested for a second in the, in the text. It says Abraham was tested. Okay, so we think about tested um, as, as a Westerner. Like if you're taking your driver's license test, you're tested on your knowledge of how to drive a car. So if you pass the test, then you get your license. If you don't pass, then you don't get the license and you have to retake the test. It's a test of how much you know how to do a certain task. It's a thing about performance. That's how we're tested. But the word tested in Hebrew uh, can actually mean two different things. Uh, the word tested, by the way, in Hebrew is nisa. Turn to your neighbor and say nisa. Yes, Nisa. Tested Nisa. God Nisad Abraham. And uh, by the way, I learned all this from, uh, if you guys know who Rhea Levy is in our church, she's amazing. So she's like fluent in Hebrew, particularly biblical Hebrew. Uh, and I always refer to her for stuff. I'm like, what is this word in Hebrew? She tells me, and then she gives the definition behind it, and it like blows my mind. This is from her. So Nisa. That's the word for tested, but then this is what, and this is what Rhea said. She said, it actually kind of kind of mean like tried. Like God tried Abraham's character. Like, and the question is like, what are you made of? I'm going to try you. And Abraham is tested about his character. Now, this makes sense only if we can lean back into understanding how Easterners think. Remember, they're looking at the whole picture, not just what's happening, but the entirety of the text. And so, Abraham's character is being nisad, tested, and we're going to see how that leads to a transformative moment. But if you're like me still, that still doesn't quite cut it. Like, I'm still like, the story still is brutal. Um, Father Abraham had many sons, many kids had Father Abraham, but Isaac, God said to kill, so let's all praise the... Lord. It's a terrible song. Like, no one wants to sing that song, okay? Like, at all. And, and so there's still something inside that's just like, why? What, you're left with this question. What kind of God asked someone to sacrifice their child? What kind of God asked someone to sacrifice their child? We have the background on the word tested. Okay, God's going to test his character. And a little bit, actually, the Eastern thinker would go, this is just a test. But as Western thinkers, that doesn't do us well. But this is what helped me tremendously. Last week, Ben Kearns talked about how every Eastern culture has a flood story. The Noah story is the Hebrew version of that and how God interacts with God's people in that space. But every culture has a flood story. In the same way, at this time, every religious system, every God system, didn't just have child sacrifice, but demanded it. That was a normal Thing. And that's hard for us to fathom. Like, what? how did people do that? Uh, and we, don't have to, we can ask that question, but the reality is it just was. It was the air that people breathed. Child sacrifice was demanded. And so here's what I think is fascinating about this story. In the Genesis text, Abraham has been called to be a blessing. He has Isaac, 
And God said, this, like, through your offspring, I'm going to bless the nations. And then he says, sacrifice your kid. And, and it does, it's like, wh- how is this possible? This is what Abraham would be thinking. He'd go, I guess, I guess God is the same as every other God. This Yahweh, as we're learning about him, I, he said he was going to bless me, but okay, I guess it's the same way that every other God system works. And this is what is fascinating about this moment. See, this is, this is part of the air that Abraham breathes. But when we read this text and we know the outcome of it, what Abraham is being set up for is what Marty Solomon calls a rabbinical moment of discovery. Something is going to happen in the story that is going to sit in the depths of Abraham's being that God is not like that. So I want you to imagine something with me. So imagine this moment. Imagine Abraham, okay? And this is from the Genesis 22 text. I'm going to kind of narrate this out. Just, just kind of hang with me here. Imagine being Abraham. And God says, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. I want you to take your son, your one and only son, who you love. I want you to sacrifice him at this location. So Abraham gathers up Isaac, and he gathers the wood. He gathers a knife, and he gathers fire, because Abraham knows how to sacrifice a child, because everyone does. And Abraham takes these things, and he puts the wood on Isaac's back. And they start to walk up. But then the servants yell. They say, hey, where are you going to be back? And, and Abraham actually responds back. He says, hey, we're, we're going to come back. We are going to go worship together. And there's something in Abraham that even is still trusting the story. So far, Yahweh has shown that he's good, he's faithful, this isn't quite lining up how I thought it would, but I'm still going to trust the story just even a little bit. And, and so he responds with that way, and then they start to hike up the mountain. And Isaac says the obvious. He says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Like, where's the lamb? And Abraham, again, trusting the story, says, God's going to provide. We have to imagine the, the fear, the, te- the sheer terror in him answering his kid like that. Like, okay, I think, God, I think God's good, but this is, okay. Maybe not, maybe, uh, yeah, God, he's going to provide. He's going to provide. I think he's going to provide. And they keep going on up. And then they get on top and they make the altar. And Isaac's hands are bound and he puts them on. And here's the part. At that moment, you just imagine how fearful, terrified Abraham is. And in, in his core, he's feeling, Yahweh, you're the same. You're the same as every other God. And he grabs a knife. And in that moment, in that moment, God says, stop. Abraham, you don't have to do that. And this is what he does. He says, I provide the sacrifice. Look over there. And there's a ram. And in the depths, in that moment, in Abraham's being, he knows the answer to that question. What kind of God sacrifices, asked me to sacrifice our kids? The resounding answer is very clear. Not Yahweh. Yahweh says, I'm not that God. I'm not the God who does that. I'm the God who provides the sacrifice for you. And I'm the God who's fulfilled the promises. And in the depths of Abraham's being, he's transformed and he knows God is that good. He's not like the other gods. He's a good 
God. And then now imagine this. He writes this down, or however this gets written first, and the people first hear the story as an Eastern way of thinking, you know that this is what God's do. But then this moment happens, and they read that God, wait, go on, God, provi- God provided. Yahweh provided the sacrifice. You, Isaac is fine. This transforms human consciousness. Like, radically shapes human consciousness at that time. While all these other gods are asking for sacrifice, because that's normal. You ask the gods, we got we to sacrifice to get what we need. And this God says, no, no, I give you what you need. You just surrender to me in obedience. That's what you do. And Abraham learns that there's a difference between the small g gods of the sacrifice and the God who provides the sacrifice. And this is what we're foreshadowed into because as New Testament people who are post-resurrection people, this is what Jesus offers us now. See that only one and only son language? That is the same language that God says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is Christ who is the final sacrifice. And this is what is amazing. I just feel like God like in this moment, if you, you think about the ways of following, being faithful to God, and it's hard. God, I'm, I'm, you're telling me to surrender my family, my friends, my work. When we cling on to things in fear, we hold on to them, we seek to control, and we sacrifice so much time and money and effort and mental energy. God, I don't know how to give away my anxiety. I don't know how to give away my finances like this. I don't know how to give away my kids are just figuring things out as well. I don't want to do that. And in this moment, I just feel like Jesus is like, hey, I provided the sacrifice. I just need you to surrender. And this is why faith is unhindered, unhinged, fully surrendered hospitality and trust. Because at the end of the day, God sacrifices. He has always been God who sacrifices. And we simply surrender. That is our invitation always. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to surrender. But here's what's so, so cool about this is there's a promise at the end. Abraham, right in that moment, God, you're that good. When we surrender, we find resurrection at the other side. So in the Hebrews text, I want to read this last piece again, that last bit. This is Hebrews chapter Uh, 11 verses 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Okay, I don't know how this works. I don't don't fully get it. I don't know why God does the way, what works the way he does, but for us to know this in our bones, to know how good God is, think about the ways that God has transformed you. And I would imagine it's because some way or another you were Nisad, you, you experience a test of some kind. God, I can't give that up. I can't do what? But then you did, and God was faithful because what happens is when you experience that kind of death of those things that are hard to give up, resurrection is on the other side. That's the promise. That's always how it works. And Christ, once and for all, in those moments where we're like, I can't, I can't let go, Christ gets our attention like Abraham and says, Stop trying so hard to fix this on your own. I provide the sacrifice. I want you to give that up. God sacrifices, we surrender. Faith 
is surrendered hospitality and trust. Because Jesus has provided the one sacrifice for all. I want to invite the band to come back up. Um, we're going to respond in worship. We're going to enter into a time of communion. And what's amazing with communion, I grew up in a space where um, communion was a remembrance, which, which it is. We use that word. I won't even say it here in just a moment. But it was, a, it was viewed um, as just as simply as kind of a thing you did. I've learned over the years that communion is a sacrament. We use that language here, which means that somehow, mysteriously, God is present with us when we partake in communion. It's not a saving grace, but it is a grace where God meets us in the elements. What's amazing about the Abraham text is that after that happened, when Abraham feels in the depths of his being, okay, Yahweh's different. Yahweh provides a sacrifice. He, the text says he makes a memorial of that location. And Daryl, actually, Daryl Bardo, was telling me that um, when he did his trip to Israel, the temple is the said location where that whole exchange happened. It's been memorialized since that moment in time. What's amazing is that Christ gives us the same kind of thing. He memorializes his body. And he allows us to partake in this, to remember that he's a sacrifice. And so through faith and mystery, somehow, when we consume the elements, Christ reminds us that he has taken care of it. And we get to surrender so the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you have put your faith in Christ and his work on the cross, we invite you to come to the table in communion with the Lord and with the people of God. I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. We're going to sing, continue in worship, and partake in the sacrifice that Christ has done. It is finished.